So you guys uh, probably noticed some changes in our sanctuary uh, this time around. Uh, we're, we're almost finished, not quite, but we're almost finished. We're getting there. So we have our media room up there. Hopefully they're not playing with the internet or playing with their cell phone. And even if they are, I can't tell anymore. Dangerous. <laughs> can't even see half their faces. Um, Today's message is entitled, Outstanding Faith. The preaching in a, it's the first of three series. I'm going to talk about faith today, the week after. I can't finish the series until I come back from Haiti. <laughs> it's a three-part series regardless, all right? So I want us to really talk about faith. And I think this is something that we all should be interested in, surely, as people who come. And surely you desire to grow. Just a few years ago, my uh, high school class held its uh, 10-year reunion. A few years ago. I ended up not going. But when a bunch of us got the... We, they did it through Facebook. So when we got the Facebook invite, that was pretty much one topic at hand. Remember so-and-so? It was basically the expectations and what they are doing now. I remember people talking to me, hey, remember Bryant? I remember one of my um, friends, his name was Bryant. Um, great guy. And what I heard in the wind was, yo, I heard he's on his third marriage. Um, how about so-and-so? Wasn't he expected to, like, rule the world or something? What's he up to? I hear so-and-so is back in school to finish some requirements so that he can apply to grad school. I heard so-and-so is a doctor. So-and-so is a... And this is basically the topic at hand. And the topic of conversations among friends was pretty much about the people, what they were expected to do, if they were expected to succeed, and, and perhaps how outstanding their lives were to be. But many didn't quite get there. Or it's about people who were not expected to do anything at all, but had made, made something for themselves. You know, Paul is writing to the church, the Corinthian church, in its high school days, spiritually speaking, see, in its high school days, they were expected to be one of the most outstanding churches of the ancient Near East. Near, Near East. Now, if you go, go through the book of Acts, you'll see how much they were expected to be one of the most outstanding churches. But just a few years later, while he was away, while the Apostle Paul was away, he starts hearing things that weren't so good. So he writes this letter telling them it's not enough to be, to have an outstanding potential. It's not enough just to have potential. He writes this letter to tell this Corinthian church how it can once again have outstanding faith. So the point here is that it's not enough for you to look to one another and say, you know what, you have a lot of potential. If you don't realize that potential, what worth is it? And that is the same with faith. When we hear the Apostle Paul tell the church how it can have outstanding faith, I think you and I should really listen. Because this is something that you and I should long for. When we think of someone having a faith that is outstanding, I think you and I think about a faith that gets noticed. The kind of faith that, that you notice. The kind of faith that gets things done. But as we look into the passage today, you'll notice that an outstanding faith comes by the way of the cross. Now, Paul speaks about a conflict, how certain people disagree about a certain very important thing. Look with me to verse 18. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And it's in the beginning of our text today, there's already a disagreement among the camp who have heard the message through Paul. Some think the message of the, of the cross is, is foolishness. And yet there are, those, there are those that believe it to be the power of God. There, there's a difference of opinion in this world. Simply put, some people think, that think one way about Christ, while others think simply the opposite. So some people think that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And that salvation in Him is wonderful. It is good. It is awesome. That is the only way to go. But what we find, even in the New Testament times as well as now, is that a vast majority of others do not think this way. And isn't it increasingly true today for many that this faith that you and I hold so dear, as it were, in Paul's day, they still look at it as foolishness. The thoughts of Christ, even in just this country, is becoming increasingly ridiculous. Many people want nothing to do with Jesus. And the question is, you and I as people of Christ, how should we as Christians respond to people like that? Then again, how are we to respond to anyone with anything against our faith? You know, you know when I get lost on the road somewhere, and I finally give in and pull into a service area, a gas station, I usually begin by saying, you know, I'm not from around here. And then I ask, can you possibly, you know, tell me or do, tell, uh, show me how to get to such a place? Do you know why I start off most of the time by saying, I'm not from around here? Why do you think I say that? Yeah, I don't want to look like a fool. I want a reason. I want, I want to give a reason to this person that there's a reason why I got lost. And that reason is because I'm not from around here. And if I were, I would not have gotten lost. That's what that phrase means, right? So I started, I'm not from around here. You know, it's because my general rule of thumb living my life is try your best not to look like a fool in front of everyone else. I think a lot of us here today have this rule in life, yes? We don't wake up every morning thinking, I'm going to be a fool today. Right? But most of the time, right, unless you're putting on a skit or something, our rule in life is we want to look good. We want to put our best foot forward. And I think many of us, we, we have the same mindset. What's also the same for many of us when it comes to sharing about our faith we don't want people asking us, how can you possibly believe in something like that? We don't want to be seen as fools. So our natural response is to put our best foot forward. So we, think to, we tend to major on the positives. Talk about what Christianity can do for you. So we might tell a friend, well, it's not extraordinary. It just really makes sense to be a Christian. If you follow the moral teachings of the Bible, your life will be better. We tell our neighbors and our friends, our family members, things like this, because we don't want them to think that, the, that following Christ is foolish. But we want them to think that following Christ is a smart thing to do. Well, you know what? 
if there are those who don't know Christ, well, it is true. It will make your life better. Following Christ will make straight your heart, and it will be better. But But the Apostle Paul does not seem to address the Corinthian church this way. He asks them directly, as I am putting the question out to you today. Are you willing to accept that being a follower of Jesus Christ will make you look like a fool? And when it does, will you be glad because you have found the way, the truth to everlasting life? Brothers and sisters, in order to have outstanding faith, not a complacent one that will just get you by, But an outstanding faith, you must be willing to embrace what the Apostle Paul says in verse 18. That the message of the cross is is magnificent. But when the world that is on the outside finds out what what we believe in, it will look like foolishness. Paul begins this section of this letter, of his letter responding to something he knew to be true to the Corinthians. They did not like the idea that to be a follower of Christ, people around them would think them, As fools. So they begin to compromise. So he tells them first that they must acknowledge this conflict in their lives, in their hearts. But now he begins to tell them in this passage that they must begin anew to avoid compromise. Because when you live in a world where there is conflict over Christ and you want to be approved by the world, then you begin to follow the standards of the world. Why is it that people reject Christ? Look with me to verse 22. It says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. And you see that the Apostle Paul, and you see what the Apostle Paul is facing in his day. He mentions two approaches. Jews demand signs, miracles. And Greeks, they seek wisdom. Paul is acknowledging why people in Corinth do not accept Christ as the wisdom and power of God. See, the Jews in Corinth, they were desiring signs. The Greeks were searching for wisdom. Now, what kinds of attitudes do these reflect about religion? See, Jews, when they, when they demand signs, their expectation of the Christian God is a God on demand. When, whenever you need Him, you call Him and bam, He's there. And if Christianity offered that kind, that kind of God to people... The Jews of, of Paul's time would say that then it would not seem as, foolish, as, as, as foolishness. And the Greeks, when they sought wisdom, most people think about Greek mythology. But in Paul's day, in Paul's time, the, the mythical gods were long gone because they were already too sophisticated for them. What the Greeks want here was a god at a safe distance. I mean, they were pretty sophisticated. They understood logic, science, and philosophy. They understood a lot about the world. And they knew that the gods of the old didn't really do much. So they wanted a God who really did not intrude into their lives. One that doesn't really demand anything of you or change anything about you. And if Christianity had offered something like that, they would not have thought of it as foolishness. How about today? Is it so different today? What the world expects of God. God on demand. If we offered the world a God on demand, someone who would answer, who would be the answer to all and any of their problems, 
wouldn't we not be considered as fools? How about all those people out there who really don't mind if in their being a God, we might call them agnostics, but as long as they are at a safe distance, they don't get involved in our lives. So as long as you go to church for Easter and Christmas, for a funeral, perhaps a wedding, maybe you even give a donation. But you don't want a God that changes you because after all, how sophisticated would you really be? Not today, if we had a Christianity that offered people something like that, they would not think of us as foolish people. Now in the church in Corinth, people wanted so, so much to avoid the charge of foolishness, they began to think of their own faith in those ways. Some in the church had some supernatural gifts, healing, tongue, prophecy, and they thought these are great. This is what worship is all about. If God doesn't give it to us all the time, then we'll have to conjure some up ourselves. Now that is worship. Now others, they headed the opposite way. Some churches had the wealthiest, most successful business persons who went to the finest clubs and sent their kids to the finest schools. They needed to be refined and sophisticated. They had God in one corner of their minds and their hearts. They brought Him up once in a while because any more than that, they would not... They would have been considered a fanatic. And they surely did not want that. Because they would have been seen as foolish. And so these Christians in the Corinthian church, they began to compromise with the world. This church who had so much potential. The church that Paul introduces in Acts to be one with the most spiritual blessings. The one who was most expected to succeed at the reunion was the one that had actually begun to fail. So friends, let me tell you something. If you begin to think or live as if your life has a God on demand that will do nothing but simply meet your needs every time you ask, or if you have a religion that keeps God at a safe distance because you're too sophisticated to have a God who will mess up your life, and this is what is going to happen to you as an individual, to your family, and even to this church the power will be gone. So the Apostle Paul, he wants them to recognize the conflict in the world and not compromise their ways. So what is a solution? What is it that we are supposed to believe? How is it that we should change our attitudes? Look with me to verse 18 one more time. Perhaps you've heard it so many times that you've missed it. But it's, but it's really weird, verse 18. Look what it says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The focus here is not, it's, it's not that the Christianity is folly, but the word of the cross is folly. But to those who are being saved, what does it say? It is the power of God. Look at verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Greeks. Now look at this. Stumbling block to the Jews who, want, who wanted God on demand because the crucifixion of Jesus was not God on demand. Folly to the Greeks who wanted to keep God safe in the corner of life. But notice the message. Normally when the Apostle Paul preached, he didn't talk about Jesus crucified. This is not normal. Rather, preaching of the New Testament, 
was almost always about Jesus risen. That Jesus, he has risen again from the dead. That Jesus ruled with power and authority over all. This was a message that set him, set him apart from the rest of the world. And that was exactly the message that got them into trouble. But here the Apostle Paul to the Corinthian church, he tells them that he preaches Christ crucified. Now, do you know why we don't have crucifixes in our church? We have a cross. Why don't we have a crucifix? What's the difference? A crucifix has uh, a carved out Jesus hanging upon the cross. Why do we not have crucifixes in the church? It's actually because we avoid preaching Jesus crucified. We want to focus on the resurrection, not just upon the death, right? We say that there is no Jesus on that cross because he's risen. And that is true. Then why would the Apostle Paul in verse 23 summarize his entire message as preaching this way? That we preach Christ crucified. And I think there are at least two reasons. The first one is this. We should know that as followers of Christ, that Jesus took the punishment of sin upon the cross. There is an objective reality out there that Jesus took upon him the burdens of sin of the world. So there is an objective reality that God is so holy and so righteous that he cannot, he will not. He absolutely refuses to let anyone into his holy presence for all eternity without the proper atonement of sin. And thanks be to God that Jesus is our atonement. He is the one crucified. But second reason, it's because of Corinth. It's because at Corinth, with their God on demand, spectacular gifts and spectacular religion, and with the attitude of God at a safe distance so I can be sophisticated, so I can be powerful, so I can be wealthy, so that I can manage life and look good to everyone around me, with that kind of attitude infiltrated in the church, he reminded them not simply of the object fact that Jesus was crucified, but that they too were crucified with Christ, that they were joined to Christ, that they were the body of Christ. They are not joined with Him only in the resurrection, but also in His suffering upon the cross. And as He said Himself in the book of Philippians, I pray that I may fellowship in the sufferings of Jesus that I may experience the resurrection from the dead. You see, so much so, even in the church today, we focus upon the resurrection of Christ. We focus upon the celebration, the blessings of Christ that we forget. In order to partake in the union with Christ, you and I, are, you and I have to also participate in the death and suffering of Christ. The followers of Christ have been given a great privilege. Our lives are not to be God on demand, nor God at a safe distance. Our lives are so blessed to be so closely connected to Him that we may one day experience the great victory of the resurrection and life everlasting. But now in this very world, we actually continue the sufferings of Jesus Himself. Christ crucified to the Corinthian church meant that your life must be one of suffering 
just as Jesus suffered and died on, upon the cross. And this is what an outstanding faith is. What was Jesus' death like? There are a lot of things we can say about that. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't do that for himself. He did it as a humble service for you. When Jesus did it on the cross, he didn't do it so that he can appear to be the strong, powerful, or sophisticated king, or or, or to seem to have everything under his control. He died upon the cross in absolute apparent weakness. It actually seemed, seemed to have failed in utter weakness. And our King Jesus, when he died on the cross, did this at a great personal loss. His entire life was this, Philippians 2, being equal to that of the Father. He did not count equality with God, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, even on to the point of death. We have to understand that Jesus, he lived a life of great personal loss. You know, so many times you and I have the image and we try to remember what it's like to have to, for Jesus to have washed the feet of his disciples. And when, when posed the question, many of us might say, you know what, I'm willing to serve in that way. I'm willing to wash the feet of my friends. But if I were to ask you, how many of you, how many of you have actually knelt down before someone and taken the step to wash his or her feet? Anyone? How many of you have taken the step? Or how many of you guys even know what it's like to have your feet washed by someone else? I don't mean when you guys get a pedicure, ladies, right? But to have your mom and dad, to have your pastor kneel down before you and wash your feet. Do you guys know how humbling that is? to be on either sides of that scene. Brothers and sisters, it's not, it's not enough to be willing to do something. What God desires is a faith that ends in action. Because our God, every time He spoke, every time He made a promise, it is always followed by deed. In everything, even in war, he would declare victory and they would see it. Even to the point of in the beginning of creation, he spoke and things were. Jesus, his death and resurrection, we have in Isaiah 53 a foreshadowing of that. God always speaks before he does. But so many of our faith, our lives, we speak. And that is all. What is wrong with the church in America today? Why is it that Christianity is so unremarkable? Why is it that our lives as Christians are so unremarkable? Isn't it because we either have this attitude of God on demand or this sophisticated God in a safe distance? But if you and I are to begin to understand that the starting point of an outstanding faith is recognition that the message that we have received is Christ crucified and that we are with him in that crucifixion 
then you and I will no longer see ourselves, our lives, as lives for ourselves. But our lives will be lives of service, devoted to the service of others. The focus here, if you understand that you and I have been crucified with Christ, the focus is upon others. You're not gathering things in this world for yourselves. You're not gathering things for for yourselves, but you're gathering things for the sake of others because you are suffering as Jesus suffered. Not for himself, but for the sake of others. When you pursue jobs and careers, Christians are not called to pursue fame and fortune for the sake of ourselves, but you and I are called to do and make more so that we can give and share more. Our attitude for success is different. Now, Scripture does not, says, does not say that as Christians be poor. It does not say that. If you look through First and Second, Second Thessalonians, it says work hard. Be successful. But the goal is not that we would make our names greater, but that through our successes, that Jesus, our mighty King, will be made greater. That our lives will be a testimony. You know, you are not gathering things for yourselves, brothers and sisters, but you are doing so for the sake of others. And that may come at a cost. And as Jesus lived and died in this world, as one of apparent weakness, we too will not live our lives in the eyes of the world as strong people. But in the eyes of the world as weak and humble people. We will not be people in the eyes of the world who live seeking our own gain and our own glory. Or rather, we will be people who willingly and joyfully live our lives at great personal loss. Did not the Apostle Paul do this? Has not every great Christian in all of history of the church done just that? And haven't the times of your Christian experience, when it's been really good, when you have felt so close to the Lord and have known the power of God in your life, has it not been when you have done just that? When you have seen your life as one of service to others, when you have seen yourself as apparently weak, when you have given yourself to the cause of Christ at great personal loss. Today in our world, evangelical Christianity is going down. But it's not true in other parts of the world. In India, in parts of Africa, in China, evangelical, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christianity is on the rise. Isn't it strange that there is a positive correlation between where the church is safe, where there is God on demand, where we have sophisticated lives, where we get what we want from Jesus, the church is going down. But where the church of God is being crucified day after day after day, where Christians live not for themselves but for others, where Christians live in weakness, where Christians live to serve their king at great personal loss, their Christianity is on the rise. You guys, many of you guys know already that our church is committed to missions in Haiti. And let us us be honest. 
that there is not a lot of open support for our members to be going to Haiti this time around. Many are willing to send money, but for our family members, there is open opposition in and outside the church. Don't go. Go next year. But for those of you who have been there, you also know that even with, with how little they have, especially in comparison to us, what we hear most in these churches and even in these people's lives is a phrase, thank you, Jesus. And this should not surprise us because it has always been this way. And that is why Paul says in verses 24 to 25, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolish, foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is needed? Brothers and sisters, what does our church need? We need true power. Not miracles seen through signs and wonders. Not God on demand. Not sophistication. But you and I need the message of the cross. It is the message of the cross. When we are weak, when we are at a place of great personal loss, when we are spent in serving others, it is then you and I will see outstanding faith, the power of God and the power of the resurrected, risen King. Brothers and sisters, you and I are called to follow the example of Christ. We do not do that when our lives are most comfortable. But when God calls us Many times it is at the most, what we feel to be, the most inopportune times. But it is when we do that, that God sees our sacrifice, but also that He sees our obedience. And He allows us to experience in His grace, His power. Brothers and sisters, I do challenge you today not just to simply think about outstanding faith, but to yearn for it, to long for it. That the lives that we live as Christians is not just about a concept, an old thought, an abstract faith, but that our faith is one that lives knowing, showing, displaying the power of the risen Christ. But to do that, brothers and sisters, you and I must begin with a faith that sees ourselves crucified with Christ. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, may we long for outstanding faith. A God that when the world seeks after comforts, seeks to gather for themselves a name. May we as your people be your light that knows how to bend our knees 
and serve others. That our church, that your church, that the church of Jesus Christ can be seen as a light onto the world. That we would gather others in your name. That you would be glorified. And that others will come into having this relationship with you. So we ask for outstanding faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.